this edition of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, this is Dominic Aquila along with Paul Harrell uh, coming to you with the this week's uh, top 10 articles. Uh, we are coming to you, though, on uh, on Tuesday, May 30, instead of the Monday. Normally, we do it day before. Uh, but uh, because of uh, some program things, we made, made it on Tuesday. So today you will receive your uh, newsletter from uh, the Aquila Report, and it'll have the top 10 articles all hyperlinked and ready for you just to click on and read and to see what the your fellow readers of the Aquila Report chose uh, as the top 10 articles that appear on the Aquila Report. And so, Paul, we're, I think, ready to uh, begin. We have got a sort of a wide thing. And I guess, you know, we jokingly always say that there always seems to be a pattern or a theme. And I think we're going to see uh, some of that, and it'll become obvious as we go through uh, this, uh, through the list uh, from uh, 1 to 10. Absolutely. There always uh, seems to be a theme. Yeah, it just keeps on coming, doesn't it? Okay, well, you'll uh, start with uh, 10 through 6, uh, reading them, uh, just so we give a preview. I'll read 5 through 1, and we'll start our discussion. All right, so number 10, John Stone Street and Shane Morris write, Girls and the Transgender Hockey Stick. Number 9, we have a post by Reformation Heritage. Did the Puritans agree on eschatology? Number eight, coming in at number eight, we have Josh Boos, uh, who writes The Different Shades of Christian Nationalism. Uh, then we have number seven, Larry Ball, A Challenge to the spirit- Spirituality of the Church. And number six, Schaefer, We Live in a Post-Christian World, Do Not Take This Lightly, a post by Bill uh, Mullenberg. Okay, then we have uh, number five, Something is Amiss by Stan Gale. Uh, then we have Words as Weapons, Why We Must Stand uh, must stand Our Ground Over Pronouns. Um, and then uh, the number three is, um, we, you see, let me get to the title here. It is coming. Uh, we Are Already Defeated by Ann Kennedy. Number two is, um, a okay another one that uh I'll get stuck here hold on a minute uh let me get it do you have that paul you can read it just which number which number are we number on? two number two number two is the pca tent yeah. or house is written by brad isbell okay good i'm sorry for that that was a little glitch and number one is tell the pca's magazine to issue a retraction by tom hervey and so we start with uh number uh, this one, and uh, this is an article where uh, Tom Hervey just uh, sort of uh, asks that the PCA's magazine, which is uh, called By Faith Online or By Faith, um, uh, he wrote an article. He refers to the in the article "Prayer and the Work of the Face of Violence," in which it was claimed that gun violence is the leading cause of death among children in this nation. He says, I published an article showing this was a false on the basis of mortality statistics provided by the CDC, which you can see here, and the chart can be hyperlinked. And others have also took umbrage to the uh, April 24th article, and I detached the uh, uh, dispatched a personal message to my faith 
uh, requesting the removal of the article and a full retraction. This has not occurred as of May 24th when this article was still available on the uh, By Faith uh, site. And so he just goes back and rehearses what he had said and talking about how serious it is that when you have such a serious statement as to say the leading cause of death among children when the facts and the statistics uh, argue otherwise, that at least a uh, removal of that or an adjustment should be made, and he is distressed that uh, it hasn't happened. So he says, I believe oh, at the end, moreover, that any PCA member should be able to do this good conscience regardless of his or her belief about criminal justice policy. For while we may differ as to our beliefs about civil or political questions, yet the proper focus of the church is a matter which we should all respect and upon which we should all insist. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And when the people of Israel were um, about to make, uh, uh, make him king, he withdrew from them, uh, that's uh, speaking of Jesus, lest their mistake, mistaken popular enthusiasm should distract from his true mission. So he's just saying we have a responsibility to take, uh, present the truth and to speak uh, truthfully and have facts right, especially once they're pointed out. So that uh, apparently is number one, and people felt they uh, probably, at least in reading it, that that maybe have some uh, veracity or belief uh, in it. So, what think ye? Yes, uh, yes, sir. Sorry, my microphone, my microphone was was muted. Yeah, this is uh, interesting. You know, um, when you when you have an article written based on presuppositions that are inaccurate, uh, it's I can understand why Tom Hervey here is frustrated. Uh, I'm you know I'm frustrated by it as well. And you know, there's a lot of people uh, within the PCA denomination that you know are able to spot leftist talking points are able to spot right wing talking points and you know some things are uh true and some things are not true and so it's just very you know it's very important as uh, an ecclesiastical uh, publication to make sure you you know you, you have uh you know the facts the truth and are not promoting something that is just blatantly not true mm -hmm. absolutely well then number two by uh, brad isbell the pca tent or house using the example of, uh, of you know some place where you can uh, at least come together and meet either a tent or a house and uh, probably this is based on the fact that the uh, some are asserting that uh, a denomination like the pca the Presbyterian church in america can be um you know it's a big tent and can accommodate folks and he's reflecting on this with reference to the upcoming general assembly which will be in memphis june 12 through 16 and it will be the 50th General Assembly. So the PCA is celebrating 50 years. It's a, sort of the Jubilee year, according to the Old Testament uh, uh, ceremonial practice. It says every approaching annual assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America provokes posturing, positioning, and even reflection uh, to history. Uh, appeals are made uh, to the founders we look on uh, the example and words of uh, the greater men we lean. The 2023 General Assembly is no normal one. It is the 50th of which will much will be made. This uh, middle-aged denomination looks to its Memphis meeting, uh, not in a crisis, but in a state of unease, somewhat rattled after five years of controversy and the recent loss of two significant figures. And the two significant figures are 
Tim Keller and Harry Reader. So, uh, so he says, as in the late 60s and early 70s, violent cultural winds were uh, buffering the uh, church and referring to what were some of the things, you know, the circumstances, not only within the church, but also in culture that were sort of stirring uh, in uh, church and having an effect on the ministry of the church. Uh, Those winds helped blow the PCA into existence in 1973. Theological liberalism and neo-orthodoxy in the old Southern Presbyterian Church in the U.S., PCUS were the initials of that Southern Church, were not the only factors that caused the fathers of PCA to flee and found. The PCA mainline, a Southern mother, uh, had capitulated to cultural on uh, culture on ethics, worship, and doctrinal fidelity. Her maternal home, once a solid confessional foundation, uh, was undermined, failing to uh, for a lack of maintenance and attention. The uh, PCUS goal, uh, per uh, Morton Smith's book title, How Thy Gold Has Dinned is the name of that, had become dim. And the late additions to the old Southern home were built on sandy soil, uh, not to be uh, not up to confessional code. The house came to have the solidity and um, solid, solid, solidity yeah, and wind resistance of a tent. Ironically, the old PCUS tabernacle uh, stakes were pulled up for the last time only 10 years later in 1983 when they affiliated with the Presbyterian Church USA. But anyway, he goes on to uh, talk about after 50 years, the aspiration of some for the PCA is for everyone to agree and that she is and always has been a big tent and that by design, she never can or should be anything else. So big tentism is not about facts. Its assertions are altogether in the realm of opinion and sentiment. Confessionalists and progressives alike may may project their aspirations for the presentation and the future back upon the real or imagined founders of the PCA. Uh, He says who they were, uh, should have been, or would become what they had intended or hoped for, none of these things are decisive for the PCA at at the age of uh, 50. So in this uh, article, then Brad Isbell basically is talking about the difference between the tent and the house. So said the tent might uh, suggest roomies, uh, roominess, but the big tents most of the uh, most of us encounter these days. Uh, contain circus clowns or maybe far beyond the cities and Starbucks suburbs, sweaty revival preachers, but maybe we repeat ourselves. Much better and more biblical is the image of a house. Houses have doors that can be opened wide or locked tight, windows that can be let in light or air uh, or keep out the rain. Uh, To the officers of the church, are given the keys of the kingdom whose subjects are now now reside in the house and the family of God on earth. No one has keys to a tent. A flap is not a gate. A house may shudder or fall, but a tent will simply blow away. So he just calling the uh, church, you know, using that analogy to uh, be stable as a house, uh, well built on a strong foundation, and as we face uh, year 50 of the PCA and beyond, uh, what kind of church will we be? So it's just a prodding, helpful 
reflection on the part of uh, Brad Isbell. So, uh, Paul, uh, I yep. think this um, healthy analogy, a good one that uh, we can look at. And he talks about Gresham Macon and says uh, Macon in a time similar to our own, though, 100 years prior. It's, it's interesting. We've talked about this before. We got the 50 year anniversary of the PCA, but it's also the 100 year anniversary of Macon's uh, book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, so Macon spoke of the church as a house of refuge and of blessing. His great Christianity and liberalism closed with these words. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven and from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Right. And that, by the way, the the river that uh, revives is a picture out of uh, the latter chapters of Ezekiel. Uh, when God brings renewal to his people uh, at the end of that uh, long prophecy that uh, he gave to through uh, Ezekiel. So uh, that's uh, a good thing as we come into the 50th year. I, I know there'll be other reflections that we'll probably see coming uh, as we get closer to and even after the General Assembly. Number three is by Ann Kennedy. We are already defeated. And she's speaking specifically of uh, her church, which is the um, uh, Anglican Church of North America, ACNA, uh, or sometimes ACANA, um, over against the Episcopal Church, TEC. So the ACANA, ACNA, and the Episcopal Church, TEC. The, uh, the ACANA Church came out of the uh, Episcopal Church a number of years ago over the doctrinal issues, uh, which predominantly were not only the uh, holding to uh, the authority of scripture, the question of that, and also uh, the issues of sexuality, which as we've noted many times, Paul, you know, it, uh, in our discussions and the articles that uh, the issue of uh, biblical sexual ethics as uh, sort of taken center stage, and we see that promoted uh, and and see it as a dividing line uh, so much not only in the culture but definitely in the church. Uh, the last article we'll deal with uh, from uh, uh, Breakpoint is you know highlights that. So anyway, in this she is speaking about what recently happened, and we've had articles like this on the Aquila Report recently, uh, where there was the uh, Kigali and Rwanda uh, meeting of the biblically centered or the confessionalist, I guess, of the Anglican communion worldwide as they uh, fought against or spoke against or met to discuss what was happening in the wider Anglican church communion, uh, the worldwide communion, because the uh, movement towards identifying or blessing same-sex uh, relationships. And that has caused and created a great rift within in, uh, uh, universal or worldwide, worldwide Anglicanism. So she says, communion across different sounds like walking and good disagreement, which Akana, that's again, the Amer Anglican Church of North America clergy are not supposed to do as our province has signed into the Kigali uh, commitment. And that's not because we're bigots and haters who are experiencing a lot of personal pain. It's because back in 20. Uh, 2003, when the Episcopal Church decided to bless a gay man in a same-sex relationship, and that took place here in the U.S., and bless him that relationship, he was a bishop, the communion was broken. 
That means that we could no longer share spiritual worship with those who decided to walk away from the faith and disobey scripture. I should just point out again that what the Episcopal Church did back then and has never repented of is what the Church of England, now in England itself with the Archbishop of Canterbury doing recently, is that it's uh, saying we, we're going to start to at least bless same-sex relationships and unions. It has to do with the Bible. Either you read it and obey it or you explain it away. These two ways are being are mutually exclusive. Two opposing views can't both be true at the same time. It is spiritual malpractice to say that it's okay to disagree that both people, um, because they mean well, are trying hard, can worship together and pray together because they are basically talking about the same thing. It's just uh, some details like nature of the Bible and who Jesus is that we they quibble over. So in this uh, article, she says we've already seemingly lost, and with any attempts of sort of coming back together as a as a body. And so uh, she, uh, our Aunt Kennedy, argues here in this article that uh, we just need to recognize that um, that uh, the church has departed its way, and the Anglican Communion uh, worldwide is now uh, fractured, and it's over. Yes, really, again, the authority of scripture and how it touches on uh, biblical um, sexual ethics. So, Paul, it's not just um, in the Presbyterian and form bodies. It's also something that's within the um, other broad denom uh, Protestant denominations around the world. Yeah, and once again, you know, we can look at this as just a form of, uh, you know, what any denom, not just the PCA, but any denominations, you know, future will be uh, if if you continue to capitulate and uh, essentially buy into what the culture is selling, which is wanting us to uh, doubt the sufficiency of Scripture or try to uh, you know soften what it says about the culture we're living in today. Uh, and we've talked about this many times, Dominic. You can look at other denominations and this, this progression, and uh, it just slowly gets uh, further and further away from a biblical worldview. Absolutely. And so the number four article continues in this vein uh, from uh, Jonathan Van Maren, uh, in which he writes uh, words as weapons, colon, why we must stand our ground over pronouns. And uh, in this article, he particularly focuses on um, Dr. Jo Jordan Peterson, whom we've talked about before. He says, in the autumn of 2016, trans activists targeted Dr. John B. Peterson at the time, a relatively obscure psychologist based at the University of Toronto. Peterson had released a video explaining why he opposed uh, proposed Canadian legislation, Bill C-16, an amendment to the Canadian Human Rights Act regulating speech regarding gender identity. Due to his decades-long study of totalitarianism, uh, Pentecost stated, uh, Peterson rather stated in no uncertain terms that in the fight for civilization, language was always one of the first battlefields and was thus the hill to die on. We all know how that fight went. Instead of getting canceled, uh, Peterson got rich and famous. After the fact, many wondered why was Peterson so willing to sacrifice his career over the issue of transgender pronouns. 
Uh, he is now one of the world's most well-known intellectuals, but at the same time, there was every likelihood that his story would end the way most of these incidents do, with a quiet firing, a 24-hour news story, and another victory for the dudes in drag. I heard a student at, ask Peterson this question at one of his uh, early lectures in 2017, uh, before he launched his global tours marked by the presence of security and prohibitive uh, speaking fees. His response to the question was simply, why not? Usually, he pointed out that there are a few compelling reasons to die for in any particular pitch, uh, patch of soil, uh, but in order to fight, one must draw a line. For Peterson, that line was language. He would not say what the trans activists and their government enforcers told him he must say because he refused to cede the right to choose his words uh, to the state. So, and um, it mentions uh, George Orwell here, who um, seemed to foreshadow that that would be the case. So the one who controls uh, language uh, controls uh, the narrative and definitely the future. So in this uh, article, then uh, spinning off of Jonathan uh, uh, Peter, Peterson, um, Jonathan Van Maren, so as Peter, P Peterson understood, there are few statements more ludicrous than their just words. Words are everything. Words shape how we understand and perceive reality. Trans activists try to transform our society, understand that, and they should, uh, they should too. Pronoun courtesy is nothing more than a public surrender to a poisonous ideology. And that is precisely how it looks to those demanding our verbal submission. Appeasement, as Sir Winston Churchill once noted, is the art of feeding a hungry crocodile, hoping it will eat you last. So the saga of Jordan Peterson, however, should give us optimism. Uh, when trans activists first attacked him for his refusal to see language to them and then state uh, and their state enforcers, he looked uh, it looked like his career would have can been canceled. Instead, his stance inspired millions. Uh, his ideas became global bestsellers, and his measured and uh, meticulous manner of speaking um, and articulating ideas became so ubiquitous that it was inspired scores of parodies. Uh, Peterson proved that being brave and standing for your ground does not have to be feared. Uh, his su su superstar status rather is evidence that we all have been craving courage for a long time. So that's another issue that uh, we face uh, is the word. So it's not only in the uh, sexual uh, ethics arena, uh, Paul, you know, it, we've been talking about how people force certain types of language on us, not only the pronouns, but uh, others. And uh, so it's important that we understand the meaning of words and use have words that um, mean something. You are exactly right. And, you know, this is a, an ideology and it's uh, based on how you respond to it. You are either affirming something that is, uh, you know, a lie again, a lie or in that it kind of goes back to Article one in a way like what what are we actually uh, nodding in agreement with here? 
um, in, you know, in this in this weird uh, name of being nice, this this uh, I, I even think kind of a um, a perverted niceness uh, that really is at the expense of the people who are, uh, you know, brainwashed in the snare of the devil uh, doing uh, all of these you know things and, and thinking so wrongly about the, the, the world and everything else. Um, so and, and it's right that he mentions George Orwell because that really is where we, we are at. I'm glad he mentions Jordan Peterson because that actually happened a long time ago. And it's amazing. Uh, you know, his he kind of became famous in Canada when he just refused to uh, comply with their compelled speech laws. You know, you will refer to me as this. You will not refer to me as that. And, and now here in America, we have, uh, you know, uh, men demanding to be called ma'am in public and you know having uh, meltdowns when they when they aren't called uh, what they want to be called i think it's a, a very good article something that needs to be pointed out why we must stand and you know we lost the ground really back when we started calling back when we started uh, accepting the term homosexuality when, really when we started accepting the term heterosexuality uh, you know, to describe ourselves, we lost uh, the battle there in a lot of ways. So he's right to point out that language is very important. Yeah. So, yeah, it is important to study uh, the words because they uh, they mean something. They have a historical context. And that brings us to number five, which is taking it in a different way, sort of a, a larger, maybe 5,000, 10 foot or 10,000 foot uh, assessment dealing with the church. Uh, it's by Stan Gale, something is amiss. The church uh, needs to hear this blaring alarm and stop, drop, and pray. And uh, so it's said in this context, it's no surprise that our society is becoming less and less familiar with the Bible. It's often regarded as archaic, superstitious, and contentious, something relegated to a less enlightened time. Uh, when the Bible is cited, it's akin to quoting Shakespeare's pithy sayings. As a vestige of yesteryear, the Bible can be brought to bear to lend some uh, sort of fading gravitas, but often those quotes are butchered and misapplied in, in uh, service of one's own aims, such as money is the root of all evil or do not judge. More often than not, these quotes are introduced into conversations by those who virtually know nothing about the Bible or message, let alone give glory to its author. But he goes on in the, this next paragraph to explain that so the first paragraph there, just generally culture. But now he says the greater problem is that the church is becoming less and less familiar with the Bible. Uh, there are actual surveys that document the document a growing biblical illiteracy among churchgoers but i speak here more uh, anecdotally as i have uh, led bible studies in the community those who uh, long, belong to a wide variety of local churches and who appear to have a lively faith are unaware of basic biblical knowledge even those in positions of leadership in local congregations show themselves to be unfamiliar with accounts such as Rahab's role in the siege of Jericho and Nathan's rebuke of David, uh, nor do they know their way around the Bible. He goes on to uh, say, uh, what is the most recently alarming is the peak, the, and peak my curiosity was, 
uh, has to do with a recent con conversation that was related to me. A woman who regularly attends a larger Sikh-Sikh church expressed ignorance of uh, basic doctrine. In fact, the word doctrine was unfamiliar to her. Here's a case, Paul, of uh, the language and uh, not knowing basic language. She did uh, make a connection between what a church does and what a church teaches. But what was really strange was her comment that uh, she read through the Bible every year. I can see people being ignorant because they don't read the Bible, uh, but how uh, does this make any sense to say you read through the Bible every year and then not really understand it? So what uh, is concerning here in Stangale's article is something is amiss. If people are not being fed the whole counsel of God, if they are not assimilating the word of God to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, they will grow weak and listless and be stunted in their maturation. Their walk with God will suffer. The work of the church will be impeded. Uh, the battering floods and winds of cultural assault will threaten their stability because of a lack of firm foundation on God's word. And so he just is basically calling uh, the church to be more aware the, and the members of the church to really grasp what is the foundation of the of the church, which is Christ, will, of course, and the word that he has given that guides us through every kind of circumstance. And so it's a, a speaking as a pastor and from a pastoral heart. He's concerned that uh, somehow the church misses it, which will, by the way, Paul, my sense would be that you can extrapolate from this why uh, we usually will cave in to culture's desire for the use of different language or words uh, because we are not settled even in the words that we do have and that are part of uh, the church's long-term history and long-time history. So uh, there is something here of value that uh, will prompt us all uh, to, you know, be more uh, more faithful. So uh, we appreciate what Stan Gale had to say and trust that you will, when you get your newsletter, that you'll read and enjoy um, and study yeah. a little bit more on that. Yeah, and he's saying that the answer to this, this lack of wisdom is to pray for wisdom, is to stop and pray. And he's ex he, he is exactly right, because it is it is the Lord who can, you know, like a like a light switch, he can uh, all of a sudden, you know, turn turn light bulbs on, and uh, uh, and he's the one that can open our open our mind and our hearts. Uh, especially, that is interesting. The lady who's reading her Bible uh, once a year, and it's and and it's uh, it's, it's not uh, <laughs> not getting through. I guess I don't know. That mm -hmm. that is certainly a, an interesting part of this article. It is. Uh, and by the way, there's the beginning of our theme, isn't it, Paul? That we're saying that uh, words mean something uh, in their, uh, for us and in our, uh, not only the cultural context, but also in the church. And so uh, scripture seems to speak about that quite a bit as well. Uh, number six uh, is by Bill Muhlenberg, who uh, pastor in uh, Australia. He says uh, the title here is regarding Schaefer, we live in a post-Christian world, do not take this lightly. And here it is, another aspect about language and words. I recently was reminded that one of my favorite prophetic voices of the last century, Francis Schaeffer, in one of his uh, volumes, utilized some of the most well-known prophetic words in the Old Testament. So I hastily went to my shelves, grabbed 
the, the thin book, blew off the dust and read it once again. And so I'm glad I did. I refer to this very important work, Death in the City, which came out in uh, 1969. And he says the material in this book was basically uh, based on a week-long series of lectures he gave at Wheaton College in Chicago, 1968. Uh, the talk centered on Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Romans 1, a heavy-duty combination indeed, and how they relate to the West. And so here was Schaefer now speaking about applying these uh, parts of Scripture to uh, the church as it lived within the context of what was happening in the 60s. And as we mentioned uh, with the beginning of the PCA, that all the cultural uh, norms that were there uh, was having quite an impact. There was the Vietnam War uh, uh, marches against that. There was the civil rights movement and quite a, other things that were uh, taking place uh, in culture. He says, those who know me and my writings know I often speak of the West in terms of uh, being past its use by date and now seemingly under judgment of God. Yet here was Schaefer uh, in a full a full half a century ago saying the same thing and making prophetic warning about it. Uh, so he just goes through this little book, Death in the City. And Paul, I can remember when it first came out, and I think I read that book in one evening, it was devoured because it's a, it is a short book. And it was based on lectures he gave at Wheaton and um, Wheaton, Illinois. And, and just it that really began to stir in my mind at that, at that time. And I noticed that this is what uh, Bill Muhlenberg is talking about here. So anyway, he makes uh, this one, uh, I'll just read this one uh, paragraph that he takes from the book. He says, a negative message is needed before anything positive can begin. There must first be the message of judgment, the tearing down. There are times in Jeremiah's day and ours are such times when we cannot expect a constructive revolution if we begin by overemphasizing the positive message. People often say to me, what would you do if you met a really modern man on a train and you had just an hour to talk to him about the gospel? He said, I would speak 45 minutes or 50 minutes on the negative to show him his real dilemma, to show him that he is more dead than he even thinks. And that he is not just dead in the 20th century meaning of dead, that is not having significance in life, but that he is morally dead because he is separated from the God who exists. Then I would take 10 or 15 minutes to tell him the gospel. And I believe this usually is the right way for the truly modern man, for often it takes a long time to bring a man to the place where he understands the negative. And unless he understands what is wrong, he will not be ready to listen to and understand the positive. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is a true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt and feelings in the presence of God. But the same is true of culture. If I'm going to speak to a culture uh, such as my culture, the message must be the message of Jeremiah. It must be the same in both private and public discourse. So that's quite a statement to say, and it's so relevant here, talking about the meaning of words, uh, is what, uh, uh, you know, he said, and there are a couple of other nice quotes here from uh, Death in the City 
that uh, we can also refer to. So, Paul, I'm uh, just reading that again or reading this article again with these quotes uh, just real brought back to my mind, you know, my the first time I read it and I said, yep. it, it really charged my circuits at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's still relevant. So, so much of, I mean, all of what Francis Schaeffer did is, is still relevant. Only a, only a totally transformed life coupled with a fearless proclamation of the truth can make an impact on a post-Christian culture. Uh, that's how Bill uh, Muhlenberg uh, ends his piece. He's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, well, and then uh, how does it all translate into um, where the church is and how it engages culture? And so Larry Ball they wrote an opinion piece, a challenge to, quote, uh, spirituality of the church, close quote. Uh, he says, but believers can publicly call out evil, for example, in abortion, homosexual marriage, and transgenderism, and in so doing, honor God and still fulfill their obligation to call the civil magistrate to repent. So basically, in the spirituality of the church, uh, this is a concept that is still widely uh, debated. That's part of the reason that uh, I just you know, spent time giving sort of his perspective. And uh, that it comes to me, and he, gave, he gives three basic uh, understandings of it that are used, and you can see why the debate would be here. Number one is, if the spirituality church is interpreted in terms of it of Greek dualism, that means uh, the Greek dualism being that there's a distinction between the physical and material order and the spiritual order, and they ne necessarily influence one another. He says, so if you start with in terms of uh, Greek dualism, then it assumes that the spiritual is the higher good and that the physical is the source of evil. Uh, the goal of mankind then is to escape the physical, that is this world, and rise into another realm of spirituality where the pains caused by the present world will disappear. Uh, the Christian in, in the church uh, is heavenly and therefore good. The civil magistrate is earthly and therefore the root of evil. Okay, so that'd be the first thing, just the Greek dualism. Or two, he says, if the spirituality of church means the church must seek, uh, not speak to political issues because we live in a pluralistic society and we must not impose our views on others, then this is not uh, only a faulty view, but a dangerous view. So first one is Greek dualism. The second one is um, we live in a pluralist society and everybody's views are equal and there's no distinction. It is an impossibility because some law system derived from some religion will always reign in any society. So silence by Christian leadership when sin is legalized by law even in a so-called pluralist society, is a dereliction of duty. Okay, number three, if the spirituality of the church means that there are two realms ordained by God and they must may remain separate, then this is the biblical view. If, if it means that the civil magistrate has been given the power of the sword to punish evil, and the church has been given the Holy Spirit to empower her to preach the word of God, to administer sacraments, to pray, and to carry out church discipline, the ordinary means of grace. Then it's a legitimate way to speak of the, the spirituality of the church. Both realms have separate powers 
and limitations on that power. The church is not to make laws for the party politic, that is for general culture, no more than the civil magistrate is to make laws for the church. In other words, the uh, government doesn't have right to dictate what sacraments mean, how you practice uh, church polity and the like. So in this, he expands on it. So it's a good article to read just to you know, work through the, this, uh, the principles here is to how does then a, the believe, believers in the world as members of the church engage in the world, which is so contrary to everything that we stand for, uh, even though it's a pluralist society. And uh, what he's saying is that we need to recognize that we are not to uh, be separate from the world in terms of uh, we would be separate from the world in terms of its ethic, but we are to be in the world in terms of speaking truth to it, much like what we just read about uh, Schaefer. So um, well, and, helpful gu- guidance yeah, on that, Paul. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that the church is not going to make laws on the body politic and then, you know, the the, the civil government's not going to make laws on the church. That certainly assumes a peace a, a peace time where there's a fundamental understanding where that understanding is not only understood by the church, but it's understood by the society, the, the pluralist, pluralistic society. And in our case, Dominic, we're getting further and further and further away from that, where I've talked about this for many years. Uh, those on the left, not only do they believe in God, they don't believe we believe in God. They believe we're making it up so that we can discriminate it against them. Uh, that's, that is uh, what many of them believe. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I love this article. And that's also not to mention that not to take, you know, we, we need to forget like the church is got its own ecclesiastical authority, uh, but the church is made up of Christians and those Christians go out and get elected in, into positions of power. Uh, and they have the influence that, you know, a biblical influence that their, you know, convictions enable them to, uh, to implement the civil magistrate, if you will. And so uh, and this is a perfect segue to the the next article, mm-hmm. which is right now a hot topic uh, for debate. And that is Christian nationalism. You know, what right. is it? What is it not? Absolutely. You're right, Paul. And uh, so, yeah, we come to this uh, article by Josh uh, Boyce, um, who uh, different shades of uh, Christian nationalism. And because the phrase is used and the, there's a, a book that has just come out, uh, the Christian nationalism uh, that um, has you know, trying to explain um, what it is and uh, put it in order because it's generically or quickly associated with a uh, something that is strictly within the white privilege area and so forth. And uh, in, but you know, he, uh, Boyce is uh, trying to you know overcome that and that terms of the definition. And uh, so probably the best thing is that. Uh, in talking about it is, say, a Christian uh, view of the world and how we engage goes back to, as you just said, Paul, uh, Larry Ball's uh, view of the being Christian does not mean that we don't speak into the things in the world. So anyway, he goes in, and it's a long article, so I'm not going to cover the how others have used it, but he says basically it's a briefcase against Christian nationalism, and basically means by that it's not, uh, it's against the uh, maybe the use of the word. And he says, um, while I do fully embrace one, per, 
well, excuse me. While I do fully embrace the once pejorative label of Christian, I would want to distance myself from Christian nationalism proper. In other words, putting those two words together. And here again, it's a case of words having certain meanings they, they, in culture and the church, and, and they can take you in a direction that you don't intend for it to go. I'm concerned with various hybrid approaches uh, to Christianity, for instance, the work church or the white church or the black Christian and examples that can be confusing. So uh, allow me to explain my concerns and then set forth an unanswered question. My attempt is to in laying out many concerns in a stand for the gospel of God's church for the truth of freedom and one that I hope would be not viewed as intentionally divisive, obtuse or public opposition uh, to against friends, that is some friends that are in that, whatever that movement happens to be. Uh, Christians uh, should pursue unity when possible, but I likewise believe it's possible to disagree on the issue of Christian nationalism without unnecessarily fracturing friendships. Those who hold the issue of Christian nationalism uh, to a higher degree of essentials may press this ne as a necessary point of division, and in such cases, although it is not my intention. So uh, what he is uh, basically uh, saying here is that the um, we understand that we live in this world. He says, I reject the integration of church and state at any formal level. I believe that there are two different spheres to use the Kuyperian model. It's Abraham Kuyper of sphere sovereignty. It's helpful to distinguish the difference between the sphere of the church and the sphere of the state. So remember, we talked about that with uh, Larry Ball's article that there are two spheres that God has created. And one is civil and the other is spiritual. One has been given the sword while the other has been given the keys. While there may be some overlap between the, uh, both spheres, specifically the church within the nation will be members of both spheres. There is a boundary that must be maintained just as the king and the priest and very much were very much distinct within Old Testament Israel. I believe that in the civil magistrate must never take up the keys. That is, the church, the state doesn't dictate to the church, and the church should not. Um, the, the church should seek to and not to wield the sword that's clearly given to the magistrate. So, uh, if there is going to be any form of uh, discipline or incarceration or even capital punishment, that it's not the church to uh, implement it. That's the magistrate's given the sword. Church history is replete with cases of religious establishment using force to bring about submission of the people. Uh, that was true during the Reformation when John Rogers was burned at the stake in 1555 under the reign of Queen Mary, that is the Bloody Mary. This led to the burning of the Oxford martyrs in the streets uh, there in Oxford during the days of the Puritans, which such unbiblical pressures upon the illegal brand of Christianity opened the door uh, to the great ejection and uh, and prosecution, John Bunyan uh, spent 12 long years in prison because of uh, such a government overreach. So if we put it in our day-to-day, -day, Paul, that would be, so when Peterson was charged with all this stuff, he could have been thrown in jail because he wasn't uh, uh, toting the religious dogma of the state with regard to pronouns. So this same kind of thing, what is it that we're going to demand by the use of sword for people to uh, believe in. So at the end of this uh, that we come up to is, as you imagine the subject important one here that I believe merits time and robust biblical examination, this 
conversation also opens up the door of additional questions to be addressed and which we intend to address through our various ministries over the coming weeks. And uh, then there are a series of questions that are here. So what does he say? The church has been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the gospel. We are to engage the common public sphere in, in the common public sphere, uh, delivering the good news and supporting efforts to pass biblical legislation, which will lead to an orderly society to the glory of God. As Christians, we labor in the fields with the seed of the gospel, sowing and watering, but only God can give the increase. The human heart will not be cha changed by civil legislation. That's not the realm of the civil magistrate. It's the realm of our sovereign God who has the authority to call dead sinners to life by summoning them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so as the gospel is preached, uh, results in changed lives, such changes will result in changed homes. As families are ordered according to the gospel, it would lead to a positive change within the civil sphere, which showers blessings upon society and so on it goes. So it, Helpful art is going to stretch you because, again, definitions, if you come in with a preconceived notion on it, reading it, um, it you have to hear what, remember, words have meaning, uh, make sure you understand the definitions that are being put forward here and then Larry Ball's article as well. So, Paul, this is, uh, you know, something when, the, when we hear the word Christian nationalism, we need to be careful as to what it really means, who's saying it, what is the intent, well, and make sure we come back to it correctly. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing. My and I have said this on the podcast many times, but if if you vote and you believe in Jesus, uh you're going to be called a Christian nationalist uh eventually in my and this is just my opinion. Uh and and I get we have a need uh, and and it's a good one to to try to categorize things to put them in their right place uh in 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 a way to separate ourselves. Well, we're not and I'm just using this because I know he's he's not a Christian nationalist, but to be we're not those kind of Christian nationalists, you know, I've, you know, and he's got a, a lot of terms up here about what it can mean. Hang on. I want to read them. All yes. of the different things it can mean. conservative patriotism, white white Christian nationalism, uh, conservative political nationalism, political Protestantism, Christian nationalism, mere Christendom. Uh, you know, I've also heard uh, somebody. Wanting to say, well, I'm not a Christian nationalist, but I'm a Christian federalist. Uh, so my my point is, it it doesn't it 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 doesn't matter in the grand scope scope of things in the middle of this culture war that we're at. And I'm not advocating at all, obviously, for you know a union of church and state. Now, I think there are some uh, Christian nationalists who are you know more Catholic that might be more uh, you know agreeable to something like that. Um, but I think there is a this is coming about because people are uh, waking up to the fruits, the rotten fruits that we have from secularism in our government, where we have pushed God completely out of public life 100 percent. And that's why you have this movement. If we were, you know, the anti-Christianism, the, the, this, the blatant anti-Christian bias that is all through our society now, if you were to take any, any, uh, uh, any movement at all, doesn't have to be Christian, but if you were to just say, you know, and give a hypothetical scenario of a society uh, where, you know, an entire large portion of the population was being marginalized, and I told you that there was never any organized opposition that sprung from it, you would say, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, so what we're seeing is is predictable, right? 
But I will just take the the last paragraph that you read uh, of this piece, Dom. And again, I like the piece. I, I like I like that it's critical and there's great questions about his problems with Christian nationalism and that sort of thing uh, that I find very interesting that I would love to engage in. Um, the, the, but this right here, the church has been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the gospel. We are to engage in the common public sphere by delivering the good news and supporting efforts to pass biblical legislation. That right there, according to the, a leftist, according to a woke leftist that believes that kids should be on puberty blockers and have the right to mutilate themselves, that's Christian. That's a Christian nationalist statement to them, right? And I'll give you another example. So, uh, uh, so Ted Cruz today, so as, as of recording, Dominic, uh, so there's a new law that's been signed in Uganda that essentially criminalizes homosexuality, quote, aggravated homosexuality, which is defined in the law as pedophilia, as raping a child, right? And so the New York Times uh, puts out this piece about the president of Uganda signing a punitive anti-gay bill on Monday. And Senator Ted Cruz, right, a guy who's on the right, uh, he, he tweets this out. The Uganda law is horrific and wrong. Any law criminalizing homosexuality or imposing the death penalty for, quote, aggravated homosexuality. Again, that is uh, that is uh, uh, pedophilia in the law. Any law criminalizing homosexuality or imposing the death penalty for aggravated homosexuality, Ted Cruz writes, is grotesque and an abomination. I thought that was interesting. He specifically used the word abomination, the same word that God uses in the scriptures when he says homosexuality is, in fact, an abomination. And then Ted Cruz writes, all civilized nations should join together in condemning this human rights abuse, hashtag LGBTQ. Now, there's a lot of us over here in America that look at something like that and they're saying, well, that's Uganda. You know, that's that's Uganda. That's a that's a nation state. That's that's them, uh, you know, doing their own thing within their own borders, uh, uh, you know, trying to combat against a, a problem that uh is politically incorrect according to the west i mean you know when we export democracy apparently we, we we you have to export the rainbow with it and that's really primarily what it is now all i'm saying is is people who are seeing all of this they see tweets like this and they think it's part of the problem because we have an allergy to anything that even uh remotely supports the things that god hates uh or the things that god loves we're doing the complete opposite on every scale, we're calling evil good and good evil constantly. And so, yeah, there's this, uh, you know, it's it's not anything official. It's not like an official new denomination or new religion, but there's people from all different denominational backgrounds that are saying, you know what? Yes, we're going to run this piece of legislation uh, in the states. And I've talked about this for a while, Dominic. This, the states are uh, are really having handing some great victories you know, to local communities protecting kids. And the other side of the coin, the argument is, well, if we keep doing what we're doing, and then we just have to accept, you know, this live and let live mentality that just says, you know what, our civil government is going to allow kids to go to drag shows under, you know, the parents are going to be fine to just take their kids to drag shows. And I think the community, the I think this the Christians in this country are saying, no, we, we reject that. We're going to say that's wrong, and we're going to say it's illegal, and we're going to arrest you if you do it. And uh, and the left is using the term Christian nationalism, and then there are those on the right who are embracing that term Christian nationalism, 
And you could make the argument there's a lot worse things that we could be called. Anyway, that's it's a, it's definitely a complicated issue, uh, and uh, I I really appreciate the article because of of the discussions and and things like that. But it's a hot topic on Twitter right now as well. A lot of people debating it back and forth. Right, it is, and that's really one of the things that we always say about our articles that we hope that it will engender that. Uh, my perspective and just the communications that I have with uh, many readers of the Aquila Report is that it's a discerning, you're a discerning lot. The people think they don't want to be spoon fed. We're not into cancel culture. Uh, we will run articles that we don't necessarily agree with, but we think that if something is presented well, uh, that it should be given a hearing so that we as uh, believers can engage, uh, uh, put our minds to it, uh, think uh, uh, critically, uh, what does the scripture say? What does the history say? And so, Paul, it's uh, that that's an important uh, part. And and your explanation and showing the um, matter of where lines might be. We don't know sometimes. Well, let's debate it. It's just like, uh, again, going back to the uh, Peterson article by John Van Maren, what is he saying is you cannot use you must use certain pronouns. Otherwise, you are guilty of offense. Uh, and that that would be more of a leftist uh, Christianized nationalism, as you were saying. Uh, and so we we can't, you know, we we when people say you can't legislate morality, the point that was being made in some of these articles is this: every moral principle, every law comes from some religious base. It has some moral impact Amen. somehow. So it's a question of whose moral base. And so that's where the debate in the public square takes place. Well, uh, let's moving to article no, number nine. Well, you know, the Puritans, we think we're all the, in, the same. And this is just a, a really neat article uh, talking about the, did the Puritans agree on eschatology? That is the doctrinal last things. When is Jesus coming? You know, the Puritan period of history, when you, uh, just these guys that uh, just had thoughts that you and I hardly can ever think about because they were just unique in that period of time. Maybe we could uh, copy it if we would study as much as they did. But anyway, so, uh, you know, we thought maybe they were in agreement. Uh, there were so many other parts of Puritanism that where they were uh, all in uh, sympathy to with one another. And so in this um, article that's on Heritage Research, it just says, um, that no, they there were different views on eschatology and they debated amongst themselves and the church still was unified and it's good to know that. So we won't uh, labor on them, but for instance, John Owen, who was uh, one of the best of, known of these uh, men, uh, held to what is called a progressive revelation, believed that uh, in his work, uh, he's basically was saying that pointed to the second coming of Christ would be preceded by the triumph of the gospel, which would occur through a gradual conversion of people around the world. And this understanding of eschatology is rooted in the idea that God's purpose and plan for humanity is revealed uh, incrementally throughout history, culminating in the full realization of God's kingdom on earth. So now next one over there, though, there was Thomas uh, Goodwin, who was a premillennial, that is a one who believed that Christ would uh, come and take his church out first and before the seven years of tribulation and um, and then the establishing of the kingdom on earth. 
So Godwin's understanding of the millennium is rooted in the belief that the literal fulfillment of biblical prophecy, particularly the visions described in the book of Revelation, and he contended that the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth was a crucial component of God's plan for humanity, during which time believers would enjoy a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity. Well, then comes uh, Increase Mather, that's a great name, he was a Boston uh, Puritan, uh, was what it was known as post uh, post millennial. Uh, one it says uh, he was known for his post. He argued that the millennial reign of Christ would be a spiritual reign characterized by a conversion of Jews and the triumph of the gospel. And so, in his mystery of Israel's salvation, he detailed his interpretation of the end times and the significance of the Jewish people and um, upholding uh, God's eschatological plan. Uh, so, well, then on his um, son, Cotton Mather, uh, held completely the opposite view. And he was just as brilliant as his father uh, in, again, a brand of premillennialism. Uh, one of the key strengths of uh, Cotton Mather's premillennialism is its consistency with a literal reading of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, which describes the binding of Satan and the establishment of Christ's 1,000-year reign. Um, and then we have Jonathan Edwards, who also was a post-millennial, uh, and he gave it in a different way. He believed the millennium would be a period of spiritual renewal and the worldwide spread of the gospel. Uh, he outlined in his works uh, the understanding of the eschatological timeline, placing particular emphasis on the role of the church and the eventual establishment of Christ's kingdom. And then we have all millennial positions taken by Francis Turretin, and Herman Wittius, um, and the uh, it basically saying Turton's interpretation of the binding of Satan as the restraining of the evil, a devil's influence during the church age aligns with the passages such as in Matthew 12 and so forth, where Jesus casts out demons and speaks of Satan's fall. So Turton emphasizes the spiritual reign of Christ as being uh, currently manifested through the church, which is consistent with patches such as Ephesians 2, 6, where believers are said to be seated presently with Christ in the heavenly realm. So uh, the point of this article, I think, is one to show that through the history of the church, the church has never settled on one uh, millennial view over another. Uh, different churches and different individuals hold to it. It says, uh, the summary, the Puritans were not completely aligned at all aspects of theology, and their views of eschatology demonstrate this well. The different perspectives reflected, reflect the diversity of interpretations and the complexity of understanding eschatological passages in the Bible, as well as the variety in theolo theological perspective among the Puritans themselves. The takeaway for Christians today is that despite our disagreements over certain points of theology, we can remain devoted Reformed Christians. Even these seven pillars of Puritan theology disagreed uh, on uh, important points of exegesis. At the end of the day, we can and must agree that Christ will return as he promised whenever and however he has determined. So uh, just a good reminder. So you read through it and you'll say, yeah, right on. OK. Oh, no, that's not good here. And uh, you, you can fight with these guys mentally and um, because that's what they did with each other. Uh, but at the same time, they held to the essential truths of the scripture and theology and uh, which blesses the church then and bless it, blesses it now.
Amen. And, you know, this is encouraging that, that these debates, I mean, everybody, I feel like everybody who is a student of the Bible, you know, you, you have friends and you, you go back and forth with different eschatology debates sometimes. I don't know, maybe am I the only one that has, has done this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it could be fun, uh, but it's actually, you know, a good thing that this is something that has been going on for a long time. I mean, I wish it wasn't so. I, 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 I long for agreement with brethren, you know. I, I want I want to agree on the things of, of Scripture, but um, it is encouraging that it has been, you know, very much up for debate or a mystery, you know, uh, in different uh, circles for a long time. And yet still, these men have made profound theological contributions, uh, and it is just kind of a part of the Christian life. So Exactly. Okay, the last article, number 10, girls and the transgender, quote, hockey stick. Now, that's usually a term that's used in um, statistics or graphing statistic that a hockey stick, you know, where it just go, you know, has the long uh, handle and then all of a sudden it uh, gets to the top and then it drops, drops off. And, uh, and so he, using that analogy with this focus on transgenderism, it says in his documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, uh, Vice President Al Gore, uh, he used the so-called hockey stick graph, plotted total, uh, global temperatures over the centuries, reportedly showing that a spike occurred after human beings began using fossil fuels. And for Gore and his fellow climate activists, this was the smoking gun that sometimes uh, something unprecedented was happening in the uh, planet, ex- except the graph has also been widely disputed, containing serious flaws. But today, a different hockey stick uh, graph, uh, data from the U.S. Center C- Census Bureau uh, Household Pulse Survey, uh, shows a huge and sudden spark, uh, startling spike in the number of girls and women identifying uh, as transgender. Since records have been kept, the percentage of adults who identified as transgender within the population remained consistently low. For baby boomers and Gen Xers, those who identified as transgender were overwhelmingly men who identified as women. Even today, in fact, the most in-your-face, high-profile transgender figures are men calling themselves women, like uh, Bruce Jenner and so forth, and he lists a number of uh, folks here. So, however, the rate of Gen Z women, and Gen Z women, basically those born in the beginning of this 21st century, identifying as men has skyrocketed to about twice that of Gen Z men identifying as women. This has roughly quadrupled the rate of the millennial women who identified as male. In fact, almost one in 30 Gen Z women now identify as men and a further one in 25 identify as non-binary. That means they are neither uh, male or female. And uh, the paraphrase, to paraphrase the Christian author Samuel James on Twitter, the trans revolution has in just a few years become a girl's revolution. So the unprecedented spike in girls who don't want to be girls is what caught the attention of Lisa Littman, then assistant professor at Brown University, when she coined the term rapid onset gender dysphoria. That's a good one. I'm going to say it again. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. She was seeking to explain why a cluster of girls, often in schools and peer groups, suddenly had decided together that they were trans. 
So based on our research, Littman theorized that this flood of gender confusion was in fact a social contagion spread by influence and example rather than some innate trait. The maladaptive coping mechanism, she suggested, may be a response to the stress of life and adolescence and perhaps even to a form of self-harm like cutting. Like cutting. Her suggestions are still hugely, are still controversial. The outbreak of gender confusion among Gen Z women uh, runs counter to the prevailing uh, assertion of the LGBT movement. Uh, no one becomes trans but is instead born that way. The common explanation that most uh, such individuals uh, were closeted in the past uh, and are not finally called able to tell the world who they are cannot make sense of the data that we are seeing. So what he's saying is, in particular, the starting, startling hockey stick of young women suddenly announced, announcing that they're, uh, that they're not women and making that explanation difficult, especially when placed alongside the similarly dramatic graphs portraying the crumbling mental health among Gen Z women. Facts must force experts and activists to reckon with the widespread harm done to young women. As one book on the subject that puts it, the damage being done to women's lives and bodies is irreversible. So um, maybe there is that um, rapid um, contagion, uh, the maladoption, uh, adaptation, uh, coping mechanism, uh, you know, it's using all these neat little words, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, something is pushing it in culture. And um, this article just helps to bring it out, has good number of links in it so that um, you want to read it further. Uh, many things to turn to uh, here. So basically what it's saying is that something's happening in culture right now uh, that is giving the liberty or the consciousness or the peer pressure or something, or maybe a number of somethings that is having a um, tremendous impact on the way in which um, Gen Z girls um, are identifying themselves, uh, claiming to change or be non-binary or uh, think of themselves as no longer female, but male. And so Paul, this example of the confusion of the age, I just want to make one, maybe just a theological uh, assessment here. That one of the things that I, when I read this the first time, that came to mind is how Paul states in Romans one that when there is a violation of God's order in creation, even whether they're for believers or unbelievers, uh, that God has already put up restraints, uh, guardrails, if you would, and those guardrails are there for our protection. Some People call that a uh, common law, a common grace, uh, so that the beneficence and benevolent attitude of God is even to protect uh, sinners from themselves. So those guardrails are there. But if they persist, he says, then God moves the guardrails out so that now you have a wider pathway or road. And the wider those restraints are from one another, the more people then seem to fall apart. And I think what we're seeing is the God saying, okay, you want to do it, then knock yourself out. And he moves the restraints out and the guardrails are further out. And so we see a lot of this damage. And yeah. that's just my 
theological understanding and interpretation of Romans 1. Well, I saw this last night, uh, uh, somebody quoting St. Augustine from Confessions. Thou hast commanded, and so it is, that every inordinate affection is its own punishment. So every unchecked affection, every, you know, lack of mm-hmm. lack of discipline, it's its own punishment. Uh, I, and I would say my theolo- my first theological instinct here when I read this was women are the weaker sex. Are they then more susceptible to propaganda? Because that's what's going on here, right? We have the media that claps like seals encouraging people to do this. We also talk about anti-Christian. We also have, uh, you know, just a very anti-white, uh, you know, uh, uh, propaganda that's being pushed out there as well. So I would want to know how many of these girls are actually white. And the reason is, is because it would be very tempting to become your own marginalized group. You know, you're a white person and so you are less than, but if you become trans, you're now part of a group that will get special rights and special attention. So this is also about the female need for attention as well. Uh, that is, you know, just they're searching for these outside of, you know, the uh, the ways that God can, uh, you know, fulfill them in, in, in their lives. So those were kind of my first thoughts. Uh, honestly, I would love to know how, how much of this is really just susceptible propaganda, very much like Eve in the garden, right? Eve yeah. listened to the serpent. Eve was deceived by the serpent. And all of these girls are now claiming they're boys and because they're buying the lie that, that, that's out there. So. Exactly. Well, that's the point that even the secular psychologists are recognizing in this now. So there are probably a lot of components. So you've given it one uh, of what may be doing it. But at the, the point here is that we're seeing this happen in our culture. And the question is, how do we now in the, in the church uh, address issues like this, especially first with our own families and our own children so that they make sure they understand who they are, that they're made in the image of God and how important that is uh, and how they carry that through in their practice, regardless of what may be happening to their peers. Uh, And then how do we take people who are still living in darkness and share with them, not to just stop doing, seeking to be something else, but how do we share the good news of Christ so that they can be drawn out of that darkness and into the light? And so that this just um, helps us to don't just go, oh, this is so different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, We need to have a gospel answer that points them to Christ. Uh, Paul, we've uh, come to the end of this week's top 10. Uh, By this time, the newsletter has been sent out. So today on um, uh, May 30th. And so you will have those list of uh, articles that Paul and I have reviewed for you. I trust that you will take time to review yourself, that you will listen to this podcast again, maybe interact with us uh, in a small group setting and, and uh, hope that we'll be just stretched and uh, by the things that are happening so that we can be found faithful in this time in our lives and uh, not uh, be taken off the uh, reservation that God has placed us on to learn more about Him. So until the next time, we wish then pray God's light of grace that will be upon your life.